Hello everyone, welcome to Codinos Talks Podcast 11 and today we will be talking about how to choose a software company to work with. I will be one of your hosts today, uh, you know me, Jorge, sometimes Mumbles. Sam, work as a software crafter. Hello, Mash. I'm one of the co-founders of Codeurance. Chris Bimson, uh, software craftsman here at Codeurance. So as, as I said before, it's all about how to choose a company to work with. So me and Sam will be asking questions based on the idea that we, we are going to be thinking like the clients. And over here, uh, Matt and Chris will be answering questions. I feel like I've been set up. This wasn't <laughs> in the yes. plan. So, so. In plan. so. so do you want to start with the uh, first one? Or? You can go first. You can go first. <laughs> so, um, over here as well. If there's too much... Um, is one to start with. One to create a, to create a product. I have an, uh, my, my own idea about uh, a product. I don't know, digital notebook, put something. And I, as a client, I have no idea about software. I don't have, a, I don't have any kind of expertise, and I'm going to ask someone about it. What is the first stop for me? Where, where should I start looking for this kind of information? What do you think? I can, I can answer first. Yes, please, because I ahead. know the answer. I think you need time to think. Okay. So, so you, you have a product in mind. Presumably, you have some sort of a business plan. Well, it depends, which is a classic consultancy answer. <laughs> it depends where you are in your journey as, um, as an entrepreneur, right? If you have an, just a, an idea and you haven't um, verified your idea, the kind of people I would look for or kind of advice I would look for is around product management. Of course, as a consultancy, we are more technical focused, but we do uh, look out for that and we we have a working understanding of how to provide that kind of advice however there are people more specialized in that area so you would look for some someone like that if however you know what you want you know your market you understand the market you have a feature set that you would like to develop maybe you're not sure about which parts to do first and so on uh, if that is the context, then then you could uh, take on the services of a consultancy. You, I would rather you, uh, you did that than go straight to someone more technical, because mm -hmm. they might be quite biased towards just building you a solution. So the first thing that we do is qualify, and one of the services that we provide is effectively what we call expert advice, which is to look at your context and help you understand what you actually need at that moment. Okay, so we are talking about three different uh, uh, possibilities there over here. First, product management uh, in terms of uh, getting pin down, pinning down the idea of what you're going to be doing. Uh, second one, uh, so that, that's when you don't have basically no clue whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Second one, you have some clue already maybe look uh, for high-level consultancy mm -hmm. company that will provide you that, that kind of uh, high-level consultancy to start uh, looking at the, well, at the technical underpinnings of, uh, of the work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And finally, the, if all that has been done, what you are looking for is actually someone, someone to implement it, yeah? Mm -hmm. in, in fact, <clears throat> I would advise that you go and start speaking to people anyway. So consultancies like us, 
and others, they don't start charging you straight away. So there's a lot to gain by, by having these conversations. In fact, you will find out more about your own problem when people engage with you and they'll start trying to understand your problem, your context. You will start um, understanding more without actually spending a lot. You, you're not really tied to anything at that moment. So I would, in fact, as a, it's almost um, the kind of the other way around, isn't it? Consultancies tend to be more expensive than, let's say, um, contractors, but when they engage with you initially, because they are interested in the, in the, in a more strategic partnership, they will invest quite a lot of time in speaking to you about your problem. So this, uh, this idea of, uh, let's start with the, the, the problem management part. What is, what person will be looking at to get out of it in, like in more detail? So I, I guess, <laughs> so w what the person is looking for from a product management part is someone who is able to help them verify their idea. Right. and to work out what the minimum viable product is that they can take into the market and learn something from it. So if, they, if you want to know more about this kind of methodology or way of working, I would recommend something like Lean Startup, which is a great book on trying to understand how you will take a product or an idea to market. So what you're looking for is someone who will help you, first of all, focus on on the key value that your idea is providing to your market and then help you validate your idea in the in the most um, in the least expensive way possible and a lot of the time it actually does not require any software to be written it just simply requires you go out to, into the market and start talking to people and start using certain techniques to verify but of course as your the maturity of your idea grows you would get to certain points where software is needed, where you need either some kind of a fast um, prototype or you need to leverage existing solutions to uh, provide something that people can touch and feel. Okay. I think a good example of that, if I remember right, I think is Dropbox. Mm -hmm. Their very first MVP was little more than a two-minute marketing video explaining what the product was and a simple web form where interested people could sign up and would get a certain amount of storage for free. And they just used that as a prototype to validate if the idea was any good. Yeah. As I understand, <coughs> it's never worked for anyone else since. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's a great way to, in fact, there, there are many different te techniques. Um, there, is, there is another book called Lean Customer Development. Uh, yeah. And it, it actually talks about how you take that idea and how you kind of, create that first contact with your customers in the most, um, in, in the most inexpensive way possible, uh, where you're not spending the money that you probably don't actually have yet. Let's kind of move uh, into, into the next part, which is more into what we actually know about, which is uh, this initial, you already have the, your product, or the idea of what you want to, to develop. Now it comes to time to talk with uh, a software company, and uh, we have mentioned that the idea of a high-level consultancy probably is the best approach at this point to know, rather than trying to go directly with just creating the product or giving it to someone to actually create the product, some point of high-level consultancy 
about maybe I need to understand what is what can or cannot be done. Uh, what will you think should we we are offering over there or, or a consultancy will be offering to a such a person? So we're talking about someone who's also or, uh, who's validated their idea or they yeah. feel they have and then wants to go to the next phase. Um, I think that depends. I think you're probably at that point looking to produce either more MVP style um, software, but um, proving bigger points or moving even to a minimum marketable product. So a very sort of early first release you can give to early adopters and get feedback that way. Again, I think you're still looking to move fairly quickly and not spend too much money because even if you feel you've validated your idea, I think that you only get the the true feedback on that when you put it in people's hands and they have to start handing money over for it. If I am, if I am asking these questions, uh, as uh, as a client, I don't have a clue of what is possible things that can be done. And of course, because I uh, work over here, I do understand the whole idea about architecture and and the different languages and whatnot. But is that important on these initial talks? Is something that I as a client to need to know, or uh, does it affect my my initial running costs to knowing some some of this information? In information regarding the technical stack. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting one, right? Because if you if you have little knowledge, it's it's almost worse than having none. Um, because what you don't want to do is dictate. What you do know, the th- things that you can think about is you can go into the market and say okay what is the the usual way or what what kind of people are available in my market mm-hmm. right so you could probably find find that out um, what, what are the most popular tech stacks for example or more mature tech stacks so if you are speaking to if you hire somebody you know that for example if they are going to use something quite archaic and which would take me to some sort of a vendor lock-in, then you need to know those things. You need to know that whatever that is being built is an asset to you for the future. However, on the flip side, it's very rare that what you write in the beginning will survive your your kind of first success. Mm-hmm. So in, in the beginning, it's not too important to worry too much about the technical stack and so on. You should worry about the cost. And you should also worry about kind of what's the mainstream, but not be too interested in kind of the nitty gritty of um, the software solution. That is, if you're a product person, if you if you don't have a much more deeper understanding of uh, of building software. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Now, in in terms of code, we are still talking about: Do I need my own machines? Do I need to have a machine running on my or my company or my offices, do I do I is that an option? I have heard about uh, Azure because Microsoft is everywhere. Uh, is something that I need to think about. Well, what are we looking for over here? Um, well, I mean, I, I don't think I would in good conscience recommend people run their own machines anymore, especially not at an early stage of a product. I think put it in some cloud platform or other <clears throat> personally. Um, 
I think the differences between them are fairly negligible. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there might be, once you have a sort of architecture vision and a rough idea of what you're doing, maybe you can price it in such a way that it's cheaper on one than the other, but I suspect they, the differences are very marginal. Yeah, when your market is small, the difference is quite marginal. In fact, what's more important is what your, the people that you hire, what their skills are. And yes, uh, the software industry, I think, has realized, regardless of the situation, running your own infrastructure is business in its own right and you don't want to be running two new businesses at once. Interesting point. So say I have a product and I've done some early kind of validation that there's there's something in this. You know, I get approached or I approach several different companies to, to do to effectively do the work. How would you make the decision say I have like a hard budget that this is how much money I have to spend on, you know, a number of developers. How do you find the balance between one company's offering me, you know, 20 developers um, for the same price as one's offering me, say, 10, but maybe the way they sell it is that one is more skilled, what, the, the one with less is more, they're more skilled people than the one where they offer me, you know, 20 developers. How do, you, how do you balance that or make that decision as someone who maybe doesn't know a lot about the actual technical side of it? Mm-hmm. Shall I answer? Yeah, you, okay. <laughs> you would. <laughs> so, so the, 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 the clue was maybe in your, in your question. You almost said less is more, <laughs> and w- which is very true, especially when you're dealing with uh, a lot of change, a lot of change in direction, and when you are starting from scratch. Usually uh, throwing 20 developers at a brand new system is in general a bad idea because Developers come highly uh, opinionated and they will cause a lot of rift when they are coming to form as a team. In fact, this is also to do with team dynamics as well. 20 people coming in to form a team quickly is very difficult. Usually, it's prudent to start small. There is a kind of a law of diminishing returns as more people you add to a team. Having between two to four people on your uh, or developers on your project is usually enough to get your project started any more than that and it will take longer for them to to find their groove together and then um, so and then you you are also looking for people who who are more skilled it's not the time especially at earlier on in your project to to look at our fairly low skilled people who will just um, you know, get things started for you and you are saving money, you probably won't save money. Uh, they might get you something, but uh, at the first launch, you will probably ha- start getting issues. And often we, we deal with people where they, this, this approach was taken and they themselves have actually said, we do not want to build on what we currently have. We want to start from scratch because they themselves understand how um, how badly it was done. So the, the answer to your question is start small and start, you know, you get you you get what you pay for. So start with people who who have some track record in delivering uh, quality, but on time as well. And also doing the kind of projects that you're that, that match yours. So people who are used to bringing new products to market, not mm-hmm. people who, say, specialise in integrating big off the commercial self systems, that that's, kind of thing. Yeah, that's a very important distinction. 
Quick question. Collocate it or remote? The people. I'll, I'll, I'll do this because mine's probably fairly controversial. I would always go for co-located to start with. Um, Why? Why? Because I think team build, building works better and I think communication works better for all the various tools we've got for remote working, remote collaboration. I still don't believe it's effective as getting the people you need in a room and getting them chatting to each other face to face. It is a problem just of uh, the tech available or for us to do remote work? That's an interesting question. I don't know if it's a, if it's the case that the tools aren't good enough yet or whether there's something fundamental about people being together that makes a better team. Honestly, I'm leading towards the latter. But yeah, I'm happy to be proved wrong. I, I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't controversial at all. Uh, co-located, if you can have it, uh, they, uh, it's, it's always the best option. As you said, the tech may be available, but the, the amount of discipline you need to work with a team that is remote is is it makes it almost impossible when you're starting out because when you're starting out you're changing your mind all the time and you're and you want that team to be an active part of of your uh, organization so you don't want to just throw something at them for them to be almost like a factory and and build something for you they they are some very intelligent people who are quite expensive that you've just hired. And writing code is not the only thing they do. They think and they have different perspectives and they are as invested into your solution as you are. So if you provide them with more context, more information, more integration, then you will get more from them. Yeah, more opportunity to innovate. If you just yeah. bark a list of instructions remotely, you, you'll get what you ask for, but you won't necessarily get that innovation when people come together generate new ideas that's right we have talked about uh, you have mentioned before uh, mass you, you get what you pay for uh, you have mentioned uh, Chris about looking for someone that is doing kind of similar or, or has experience on doing this similar initial setup of of a, a company we have talked about probably preferring collocation over remote Is there any other characteristic of a company that I'm going to work with that I need to be aware of? Any, anything special about the... Am I looking for something else apart from all of this or, or not in a company? Or is that... If I were to choose between three different companies and all of them are kind of uh, similar in, the, in, those, in these regards, is there anything else that I have to look for into them? Uh, see if they are... Maybe they're more suited, uh, suited for me or not. Um, there are other things you can look for. I mean, most um, companies these days have a set of values or founders or whatever have certain things they believe in and certain things they want to do. You can look for a partner that is more aligned to your way of thinking and your values. That's probably, that. avoid that kind of culture clash is, is a good thing to look for, <coughs> in my opinion. Which, oh, sorry, I was yeah. say, which can be hard because I noticed over the last few years a lot of companies are, get, are getting very good at marketing their values, supposed mm -hmm. values, but it's, um, it's only skin deep. Mm -hmm. I won't name any names because I've worked for a few of them. But, um, <laughs> it's going to see this scene. Yeah, we've got to edit that bit, I guess. Um, so yeah, you've got to be a little bit wary of that now. It's not so easy to determine as perhaps it was at one point. Yeah, I, I, I would favor companies that are more open, that show they're working. Mm -hmm. Also, 
uh, as Chris said, look beyond the the kind of the shiny marketing. A lot of companies are very good at not only marketing but also coming in and really impressing you because they have a kind of cookie cutter way of selling and they know what works or what resonates with people from a kind of initial attraction point of view. And some even go as far as give, take bringing the best along, but as soon as they get established, you know, they kind of bring on the infantry, which is not exactly what you what you. Yes, yeah, so you get the A team for the first month or so, and then they slowly rotate out, and you're left with the not so A team. Exactly. Um, I think having an open culture, understanding what what they are providing, but also understand kind of what I would look for is that they're not there to act as your supplier. They're there to act, act as your partner. Now, some people think of that as, you know, there has to be a kind of a shared risk or something. You can go down that way, but I think that again goes down towards contractuals. Uh, a partner is someone who works together with you that you trust beyond what's written on a piece of paper or what the lawyers decide. And so those kind of people you will know when you when you speak to them, they will work with you, they are transparent, they they will really buy into to what you're doing and they will give you uh, the hard facts. They will you know they they will not always sugarcoat the risks and, and the shortcomings that you may have. So I so I look at the track record of, of the companies. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's no different to hiring anybody to do anything. Yeah. You want some evidence that they've been doing it before. I mean, if we're going to basics, you know, also check them out on company's house, make sure that they're solvent, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. What, what kind of uh, information I can ask for? Um, references, case studies. Mm. Yeah, those two would yeah. be a good start. Yeah. Ask. I mean, it's, it's actually often a lot of companies are quite open to you speaking to their previous customers. It's not, it's not a bad thing to ask for, in no. fact. I mean, it's, pr- it's probably the best kind of marketing if your existing customers are prepared to sing your praises to potential new customers. Yeah. So, um, yeah, a lot of companies will cultivate those kind of relationships. So they won't be offended to hear that or yeah. be, or be yeah. you know, secretive about it. If they are secretive about it, uh, I think you should probably ask a few more questions around that. Is there any uh, red herring? Oh, no, red flag, sorry, not red herring. Is there any red flag that I need to be aware of when looking for a... Or this initial partner on my on my journey. <laughs> um, uh, beyond what we said, I think a, a track record of um, them uh, completing projects that are similar to yours. Again, culture of openness, being able to speak with pre- current customers, previous customers, that kind of thing. If if they're secretive and not so keen to tell you that kind of stuff, I think that would be a red flag for me. Beyond the, the obvious stuff, if you look them up in company's house and it turns out that, you know, they're spending more money than they're making. That mm-hmm. would, that would, if you're looking for a long-term <coughs> relationship, you, yeah. So yeah. fiscal due diligence, I guess. Another thing I would, I would really look out for is there are certain white lies that people tell. Um, so if you give them a, a large uh, feature set and they come to you with a number, that number cannot be correct. So if someone, if a company is coming to you and you have six months of work or a year of work ahead, and they say it's gonna take exactly this amount of time, and we're gonna charge you exactly this much, and we'll do exactly what you told us to do, that's a red flag. How are they coming to that number? Because estimating that far ahead 
is is impossible. So what are they doing? They they're doing a bunch of things. Either they are adding a lot of fat to to their estimate, so so that you know they know they'll get something done. They're probably also locking down your scope, which means that change will be difficult, and they will they rather maybe they're not building in the fat. They're just locking your scope down, and they know that change request processes will be the bit that makes them a big profit. So people who are providing some sort of a concrete uh, figure uh, and not giving you the caveats, I would be very wary of that. It's also why that's a good idea to, in my opinion, it's not a good thing to ask for either, the sort of fixed price, fixed mm. scope thing, because there are a couple of outcomes for that. One is the people you're dealing with are better at working out your scope than you are. So the most likely solution is they will figure out where your likely changes, and if they're clever, they will have that excluded from whatever scope they agree with, so mm. they can charge you a premium for change requests. The other end of the scale are people who want to land new business at, at whatever cost, and then from that point on, you will form an adversarial relationship as they try to keep your work profitable for them, mm -hmm. and um, that's not a good thing because if they are, if the, the company you work with end up losing money on your project, then there are a bunch of ways they'll try to mitigate that, reduce quality, um, less experienced staff, and in the worst case, they might have made such a poor decision choosing to work that they could end up um, going under. Mm. Mm. I, have a, I have a question. Fire away. So slight, maybe a slightly different take on it. If, if a company comes to work with me as a, as a partner, and say we've been working for a period of time, and we're, we're, they're doing stuff, um, are there any red flags once you start the relationship that it's not working or um, how do I put it yeah I guess it's not working mm. okay I can start with with an answer um, so software projects are a complex beast and it's, it's like any complex relationship there will be ups and downs and the key is trust transparency as soon as you see something you raise it is to keep each other um, in well informed, right? So, of, you may disagree on the approach, or you may disagree on uh, even if something is complete or not, or what's a bug versus what's a feature, and those kind of things you may disagree on. But the the biggest red flag is where your supplier or or your partner actually is. Uh, consistently setting certain expectations and not fulfilling them and you have good reason to believe that they knew of these problems way before you were informed. So it's all about working together, it's all about keeping that transparent relationship going. Um, so I would say the red flag is, the, is kind of hiding information or hide, um, not giving you visibility of the risks or issues at the time that they occur. How, how do I cut my relationship with a partner at that point? How do you cut your relationship? Ooh, that's, 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 that's harsh. Um, <laughs> that's going to come down to contracts and things, isn't it? So, Have you heard of Brexit? No. Alright, okay, sorry. Our contract is legally binding. No, I mean, that, that's going to become contractual 
I, I don't think there's g- general purpose advice you could do that. I mean, it can be difficult to make that decision, I suppose, because you've got a certain degree of sunk cost fallacy and mm. there's a, been involved in certain meetings where things haven't gone very well and there's a belief that we can just sit down and talk about it and hash out the issues and next time it'll be better and then next time comes around and it isn't better. Well, you start to see that pattern. You've got to um, have, I guess, the the courage to realise that you've got to end that relationship. I guess it's not really that different to any other kind of relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, is there a trade-off between kind of being reliant on, or maybe an over-reliance on the provider, quote-unquote, so that the company that you partner with versus mm-hmm. having kind of a, a stable internal capability? Mm-hmm. Um, and do you think there is a a balance to be struck there between having, and it, I, I admit it's probably going to depend on the stages of the company and where it's at um, and the type of product it's building, but between having in-house developers and kind of maybe partners, do you think there's a balance to mm-hmm. be struck there? I think often a lot of people say you have to decide whether you are a technology company or not. And if you consider your business to, or the technology to be at the core of your business, then uh, the partnership you need if you just completely outsource that capability the the depth or, or, or the complexity of the partnership you'll you'll need is is very high and you you'll get lucky to have a partner that works com- so in line with you that they for, for all intents and purposes they are part of the company having people who are um, basically who belong to your own organization. If you are a company where t- technology or software is, re- is kind of at the core of what you do, in my view, is a good idea. And having a partner that works in a, in a very harmonious way with your people is the kind of partner that you are. I am the client. I have no clue about uh, the software development process or anything like that. And, I, and we, we were reach that point in which yeah, we are, uh, I have to cut my losses at this point in time. What information do I need to keep with me? Well, what, what do I need to keep from the relationship so I can move to the next one? In terms of, uh, do I need to keep the data or uh, the application? Do I need, uh, uh, I don't know, diagrams? some documentation what, what are things that I should be looking for well to be honest even if I am just even if the thing goes up all the way to the end to the final product and everything I'm happy with it mm-hmm. uh, as a client what I should be getting in terms of uh, it's just uh, my software so my uh, the application running somewhere but I don't know where enough or do I need more than that I think you probably need more than that I mean, again, it depends on the nature of the relationship, but at some point, presumably, you want to, the partner to hand over what they've done and you to ultimately become responsible for it. So what you need in those circumstances is going to depend very much on your product and how you've worked up to that point. So I don't think there's a, to use the, the cliche, it depends, I guess. Um, but yeah, I think that's the, the sort of uh, transfer of ownership and operations, if you want, is something that you should plan for and build into that kind of relationship I think sometimes people give value to the actual core more than is due I've seen in places where they've gone through a tough 
time and they've got rid of the people saying, oh, we have the code, we'll get some more people when we, uh, you know, we, we get better or we get more funding. And often the most valuable thing that you have is the knowledge in the collective organization that you currently have. So if you are cutting your losses, as you said, you really need to understand what would, what would that mean? Bringing someone else in, how would they impact the culture of my organization? Taking a number of people out, how would that impact? The information that they have, the ways of working, the tacit knowledge, the kind of the common understanding of ways of working, which are not, it's very difficult to document these things. There's that complex organism that you've created, you are effectively amputating a big aspects of it. And you, like, you really have to consider what impact that will have. And usually these kind of things are easier to evolve out of than to cut away in a sudden way. So if we are talking that uh, that knowledge held by the people developing the system because it is quite important, so shouldn't I be looking then and just doing it in-house? I mean, get my own set of people Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than looking for someone external? Well, that's an option, but it's, it's not as if um, building an in-house capability is any easier than finding an external partner. Yeah. It's probably an order of magnitude harder. Yeah. So, you know, you pay your money, you take your choice, but yeah. you're not making your life any easier by picking that option. Certainly. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely harder. And, and the, amount, the, the knowledge you need to have or the trust that you need to place is, is, is very high. Usually consultancies have a very specific ways of working. They have people that are um, aligned with each other. They are almost ready formed teams. Mm-hmm. And forming a team yourself, you do need, you, it's not easy. And you do need to get all those things right that take consultancies years to get right. Yeah, you're not just hiring people to write code for you. You're buying the knowledge of how to form, maintain teams of people to do this capability yeah. as well. So it's not just writing code, yeah. it's how to build a team to write code. Yeah, and, and the knowledge on how to align those teams towards the value that needs to be delivered for your business. So, so, so some, just, just uh, that reminded me of something. So uh, I've seen it before where companies will bring in, uh, where they kind of have different partners and say if they're doing Agile, they may have like a PO from one uh, company and, and then the development team might be from a different one. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that's an optimal way to form a team or do you think that the company or the partner you're working with should, it's better for them to provide the, the whole team, if you see what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I think any, any scenario can work. It just depends on the people, right? What kind of people they are. The risk of causing dysfunction involving more and more more organizations is higher. Uh, a single organization will have certain types of dysfunction. When you have another organization that comes in, you are adding another layer of politics. And But at the end of the day, it depends on what people are on the ground. And if they are used to working, if their values are around honesty, transparency, working well together, trying to do the right thing, then they will. But if they are playing politics, uh, it just makes the, makes it even more difficult to having many uh, consultancies in a single project. 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose it could work, but for me, the, the, the way the commercial relationships interact in a situation like that, it feels to me like a, a recipe for, like you say, dysfunction mm-hmm. and politics rather than achieving the goal you set out. That's right. Yeah. I, I'm not saying it won't work, but yeah. I don't think you're stacking the odds in your favour by doing that. No. Should I have a transition plan at some point to move away from the consultancy? Uh, so I don't start with the internal people because it is difficult, I don't have a clue. Uh, as you have said that I have to get the, the build the team and I get all that coming from the, and pay for it, but it comes from the consultancy, they, they give me all, all that, um, that expertise. So at what point should I be looking at, or if at all, a transition from consultancy to, to in-house as we move along? I think when you depend on an external organisation, you need to have or you probably ought to have at least some sort of uh, risk analysis of the situation and some backup plan in the event things go badly. As for a specific transition plan, that's going to defend, depend very much on your situation and your project, I think. I imagine in most situations you will slowly want to bring uh, that knowledge and that capability in-house, mm-hmm. um, but the, the, the timescales and the methods for doing that are going to vary. I think yeah, one constant is that as your business matures and you have decided that actually uh, technology is at the core of my, my business, then you should have some sort of a plan to have at least a, a part of the capability in-house. But yes, it completely depends on the nature of your partnership um, and how quickly you do that. Uh, and it, again, it's an evolution type of thing. And again, you, you should be dealing with uh, partners who welcome that, who see that as your strategic advantage and help, help you towards that goal. Now, we have been talking about characteristics of the, of the partners and, and uh, how can I kind of choose them. It's a big question. How do I look for them? How, 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 how do I look for a, for a software consultancy? Do I go to Greylist or eBay? Uh, <laughs> Email. Now we can go to email. <laughs> but I mean, how 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 do I know where to look for consultancies? Do I just put consultancies on Google, or you could start that way? Um, you probably got a personal network, or hopefully you do, and hopefully some of those will have experiences with uh, various. I think it's always better to go with personal experience to start with mm-hmm. to get at least some candidates to talk to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, source from from different. I guess avenues, right? So, have a look at your LinkedIn profile and the people that you may have dealt with. Also, look for the kind of you know these top ten lists are, are a bit bad because they're often more about politics and who's kind of having dinner with who. Okay, so where do you find consultancies? Right. One thing I would say is that if you are a small startup. I would kind of look at more either niche consultancies or agencies even. Uh, some consultancies kind of have this agency function or they call themselves agencies because they are more geared towards building websites. They usually have a some kind of a CMS that they work with. They will come and they will just install that and they will work around it and they'll get something up and running quite quickly. So it depends on what kind of consultancy you're looking for, right? So if you're looking for an agency working around a CMS and so on, there are many out there. And in fact, you can just choose the kind of CMS you're going to work with 
and then just from there find the recommendations. Uh, if you're kind of looking at more the mid-tier where likes of ThoughtWorks, SQL experts, and, and I like to think we are as well, there's not many, it's not too much of a crowded place. Uh, and in fact, there you can start looking at how you like to work. Uh, and you can start thinking about the kind of practices, so the kind of the modern practices around lean, agile, XP, software craftsmanship. These, if you search for that kind of work, you it's not that crowded a, an area, in my view. You will find maybe 20 or 30 in, in London that are well known in this area. That's, if you then take those 20 and 30 or 30, then you start look and start looking at your, your own network and see if your network in a way cross sections with some of those and start getting your own, making your own opinion on the kind of people you, you're gonna work with. In the end, however, it's all about the people. So what you want to know is, you want to explore your options, but you wanna look at the people that you are engaging with and see, can you see yourself working with them? You know, do they share kind of similar culture or the way you want to work? And that's when you can start uh, looking to um, shortlist. And then there are many ways of choosing, but that's a different question, I guess. Any idea? Uh, to that question or the previous one? Lovely. All of them. The previous one, yeah, beyond some practical advice. So there are usually, wherever you happen to be, meetups organized around various types of technology and software, um, startup incubators as well, are all places to go and speak to people and get opinions. Oh, there are, of, of course, the, the, this I do know because, well, it's London, lots of meetups, which one of, one of the reasons why it's great at the moment to, to actually do anything over here is that it's relatively easy to actually find the people and get to know the people. But that that's not available outside. And in fact, depending on where you are located, it's there is a degree of that. But speaking of somebody who lives outside London, it's not a complete wasteland. People do speak and talk to each other. <laughs> no, but, but I mean, it's, it's, in principle, it's always more difficult than the no, you're right, it is. The um, place you are. You certainly get hubs throughout the place. So obviously, I live in Reading, so the Thames Valley. There are places. There are things there. Yeah, Bristol's very up and coming at the moment. Manchester, Manchester obviously. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I guess if you're... Leeds as well. Leeds, yeah. So in Cabran or something, then maybe you might need to look further afield. Yeah. I suppose then, then that as well has to be part of one, one of the things that I'm going to be thinking of. Even if my, my system can be completely... Uh, the product I'm selling is all online. I mean, I'm still... The, the location of where, I, where I'm going to have my office is still going to be important because of the people that I can work with, or it's not as, as important now? It's, I mean, if you want co-located, if you want to be co-located with, with your team, then you do need to be, to live close to them. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we argued earlier quite strongly for co-location, yeah. at least at the start of engagement. So yeah, you're going to need to be near other people. Yeah. If you're on like the Isle of Skye or whatever, you may have to move your business. Yeah. And it also depends on how big your kind of the rest of your business is. If there's a couple of you, most consultancies would be more than happy to have you sitting with with, with the team. Okay. Any other question they want to ask? Yes. 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 <laughs> so, at different stages in the company's kind of maturity or the, on their kind of their journey, they may want different types of 
people. So is it possible that they may they may engage with different companies along that journey? So initially they may, uh, I don't know, they may opt for company X and then when they, maybe they're like a, a few years or maybe even sooner than that, they might decide that actually these type of people might be better. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe initially they go for maybe like a specialist, depending on what their product is. And then maybe somewhere in the future, maybe they change their mm-hmm. kind of engagement. Do you think that's like a valid thing to do for companies? Or do you think if they, if they pick the right kind of partner, they won't necessarily need to do that as much? Very good question, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think if you think about it in terms of different services rather than different people, yeah, I think it, you, you could conceivably get to the point where a provider you started out with isn't necessarily the most optimal choice anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't think that would be incredibly unusual. Mm-hmm. Often, your, sometimes your priorities change and certain... And it's not a case of, like, it's not a pull, but sometimes kind of a push situation where you, you, you're already dealing with a consultancy or a partner and you start realizing that there are certain shortcomings and they're not the people to help you kind of move to the next stage. I like to think that if you choose the right partner, they will take you on that journey from start to finish or start to success, rather. Uh, but it often happens that, you know, you start with something because you, you know, you're very cost sensitive or you made certain decisions. Maybe you've gone with, an, say, for example, for example, an agency that are using a CMS and they've got you kind of through that first release. But you realize that that's not, you know, if, you, if your business is to scale, you need, you need more. And, and they are a niche and they're working with just that thing or that way. But you need a more of a more general approach that is customized to your needs. Then you might move to a consultancy who, who doesn't have a kind of a single solution and is just looking for problems that that solution fits, but rather are able to create a bespoke solution for you. Anything else that we have left or that we haven't mentioned regarding choosing a company to work with? Anything else? I think one thing that I would like to reiterate is when you when you are looking at you know when you have an idea in mind and you have some budget it is very difficult because what's out there is so um, varied and the cost is so varied as well you know you you might find a developer who's who's who, who's doing who can do things for you for peanuts or a developer sitting somewhere else in a different country even uh, or you might find a, a kind of a small agency or you might find you know the all these there's so many options and finding the right option is is very difficult and I think what I would say is that talk to different people because at the end of the day, it's all about the people. You know, you two people might deal with the same organization and get wildly different experiences because they were dealing with different people. Or you might get lucky and you might find somebody that you can really trust and they're just a freelancer that you, you, you're working with. So it's just a, working with a consultancy offers you certain guarantees, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't explore your option. Anything you say? Uh, no. Um... Not really. 
Um, we could talk a bit about competitive tendering if you wanted, because I've had experience with that. Uh, oh. I don't think that's a great way to choose. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great way, especially if it's done blind, like some government tendering is, where you get five or six different partners effectively um, cutting their own throats to try and yeah. uh, win the business. Actually, that's, that's a point, something that has been on my mind for, for quite a while, is the fact that, um, it's in general, it's how most governments are of work in terms of just they give the the contracts to the pe- pe- people that uh, provide the lowest lowest tender most of the time is they're uh, very price sensitive. Let's put it that yeah, way. It's not yeah. always the lowest, but uh, price is a very big factor. So the the, the thinking over here is that it, it, it seems to me that we are talking about lo- looking at uh, how how is your interaction with the client, how uh, sorry with the with the supplier, how uh, the track record, the evaluate in advance and and, and and see as well how it is evolving the partnership. Uh, and yet it's something that most governments always have problems with. What they are doing differently? It's just... Um, well, I, I can't speak for all governments, but in the UK, um, supplier selection processes are, I'm not sure if regulated is the right word, but they're, they're very prescriptive to ensure that they're fair and to ensure that the people both fair to the suppliers and fair to the taxpayer, so transparent and, and not corrupt is what I'm getting at. So um, the leeway for the people who want something done to make those kinds of value judgments in a lot of way is doesn't really exist. They have a very prescri- prescriptive process they have to follow, mm-hmm. and that tends to favour certain kinds of provider. But yeah, competitive tendering, on the other hand, is also quite a bad place to be. Mm. Uh, some people, what they do is they will kind of shortlist to maybe two or three, and they will en- engage them on different projects if you're big enough. But that's not for for a small startup. But yeah. for, for a no. larger company, they'll they'll engage two to three. They may just keep all three on those different projects because they like having that comparison constantly. Uh, I've been told by some people it keeps us on our toes. In fact, the this kind of situation where we work with our partners where there's been more than one consultancy but quite aligned. And these, some of them tend to be fairly uh, clever in the way they choose. They choose the, uh, the kind of companies that work well together. So it's not that they're not choosing the companies that all oh, these two will fight each other they're just saying we are we are broadening our choice but we know that their values are, are are so similar and the ways of working are so similar that they will cooperate well so that's that can can work but yeah the tendering process is is always a bit difficult at the end of the day you know even rfps that people that you get it's very difficult to to kind of think okay what what is the person really looking for you know and often it's a very subjective view you may actually be very well suited but if if you don't kind of uh, align with the world view of the person doing or the team doing the judging where it works actually quite nicely is where we we've dealt with partners where they will, they will have a request for proposal 
and they're very open to iterating on that. So you kind of think, okay, I'm going to interpret your, your, your request for proposal, and here's my kind of answer, but it's a draft. Tell us where you think we should be, in, kind of be, provide more detail, the areas we're not addressing, the areas we are addressing. But keeping those questions, those things fairly transparent to other people as well, so others can see as well. And then kind of allowing for that dialogue to take place. Um, there, those work better, I think. Okay. Is it always obvious up front who's prepared to have those kinds of conversations? Or do you have to take a bit of a punt? And, we um, always ask. No. We always ask because from, from our point of view, when, when an RFP comes to, to us, usually it follows a meeting. Some context was set, made, but only for, not for long, and we, we've gone in quite cold. There is a document, and, but at the end you really want to know what their real problems are. Yeah. And the document, the real problems are hidden in a lot of text and sometimes there's a lot of text but the problem isn't there, you know, it's in their heads, right? So you always ask and most people, especially the ones we get, not from the government, but <laughs> although they do, they do actually have a process for that, by the way. <laughs> they do have a process for iterating on a draft and they're keeping things visible. The thing is they do things that seem like the most... Um, sensible things to do, but it's just the end result is always not not satisfactory. But um, yeah, you always ask, and most more often than not, they are they are open to it. Anything else? Are we happy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank Thanks you. for uh, <laughs> for organizing this. Okay, and thank you to all our listeners. Until next time. Ta-da. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>